So they favored calling butyrate butyrate, like just anything that's a metabolic product of bacteria, just call it by its chemical name. And then you don't have to say where it came from, just that it's there. And that postbiotics should really refer to the um, what's left over after you inactivate or kill um, a bacterium or a fermentate, like a, you know, um, a soup of, <laughs> of live bacteria. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Christina Campbell. Christina is a science writer who specializes or focuses in on the microbiome. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, great. My pleasure. So I invited you on today to look at all things current and emerging around the microbiome, um, both the microbiome itself and some of the therapies practitioners may have access to now or hopefully maybe in the near future have access to. Uh, so before we dive into all the, the geeky details, perhaps can you describe to your listeners, how did you become a science writer, particularly focused in the microbiome? Yeah, it was about 10 years ago when I had my own significant gut problems, actually. And um, I really was looking for solutions and was one of those people that wasn't able to be helped by, you know, um, traditional medicine, like with my doctor. So I was looking around at different things and I came across this new area of science on the microbiome. And I just found myself fascinated by it. And so I started writing more about it sort of with um, a personal interest in learning more about my own condition. And, you know, in retrospect, it was probably something like IBS, but I never had that, that definition, mm -hmm. irritable bowel syndrome. Um, but anyhow, I tried a lot of different things um, and eventually kind of resolved my gut issues. But sort of on that journey, I was learning so much about the science. I was talking to some of the leading scientists in this area of the microbiome and I've just sort of watched this field really grow over the past about seven years and um, to this complex and promising field that it is today. Yeah, wow. And do you have a science background or is it you sort of learned as you went? Um, you got a, like a journalism background? Uh, my background is quite eclectic. I actually studied <laughs> um, linguistics and semiotics and philosophy initially. Um, and then I did take a master's in science and mm. Um, I worked actually as a clinician with um, people with communication disorders. So kind of rolling all this up, I, uh, <laughs> you know, took a turn and took um, a short journalism course and it set me off on my freelancing career. And, you know, since then, it's just more um, immersing myself in the science and the conferences and interviews with the experts. Yeah, right. And so yeah, before COVID, um I noticed on, or at least following on Twitter, that you travel all around the world to all the conferences reporting on it. So that sounds like a, a nice, cool job, like learning all about the microbiome and traveling around. Yeah. And I have to say, every conference I went to, I learned something kind of mind blowing. And so, yeah, I really love hearing the latest. And of course, in the past two years, it's been more through virtual conferences. But, 
it certainly seems that, you know, next year we're looking ahead to more in-person events. And, you know, I love those because you can see the, you can talk to the speaker after and have a cup of coffee and learn more. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's outside the sessions. You learn so much from the, the research that if you can get their time. So that was, yeah, the reason why I reached out to you because of your background and ability to communicate all this uh, quite complex, exciting, um, sometimes frustrating um, information that you read on the microbiome. It can offer so much hope, but often it's wrapped up in perhaps some hype and it's really hard to discern sometimes um, what the signal from the noise is with the microbiome and, and therapies. So today I wanted to look at uh, areas around the microbiome, not just the gut microbiome, and then look at some novel therapies or potential therapeutics. So um, in no sort of real particular order, let's kick it off. Um, probably a broad question is around um, composition and diversity. Um, so we, we, we often hear that diversity is really important and we see altered composition in disease states, whether it's I don't know, autism to Alzheimer's to obesity and cardiovascular disease. Um, but there is, as I understand, there's no like perfect microbiome. Um, so I suppose broad, broadly, how, how do you sort of um, see this research? What's your takeaway around like diversity and, and composition? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think it has evolved um, in the past, you know, five to seven years. Initially, a lot of these studies, of course, were comparing um, people with a disease or condition to people without and finding, yes, oh, the, the people without the condition had increased diversity in their gut microbiota. So, you know, that seemed like a, a good sign. Um, but I think subsequent to that, there have been studies showing that diversity is not universally good. Um, for example, um, Henrik Roeger out of Denmark has found, um, and, and his colleagues have found that um, certain times um, when you have like low gut motility, in other words, constipation, um, you have a high diversity, you also have some detrimental kind of metabolites. So it's not a good thing in that case to have high diversity. Mm. So I think that the takeaway for me is, you know, a lack of diversity is probably detrimental, but diversity is not always good. Um, and in some ways, it might have been um, like our thinking that diversity is good may have come from um, the initial tools used. So, of course, early on, we used a lot of the 16S ribosomal RNA gene sequencing in many of the studies. Um, and diversity is one of the salient things that comes of those analyses. So it was just really obvious to the scientists that there was diversity differences. Um, but now I think more and more you're seeing studies with shotgun metagenomics, which of course has better resolution and gets better into the exact species and strains um, present. So mm. those I think are going to be the new frontier of um, exactly what's relevant to the disease state um, rather than this broad thing like diversity. Yeah. And you also touched upon something there that I've been puzzled for by for a long time is that idea of cause or effect to chicken or egg um, motility maybe because the the contraction's slow and there's stasis that allows for alterations in the microbiome versus there's alterations in the microbiome then that causes the um, the poor motility uh, so 
yeah, around diversity, do um, all these th- factors uh, are linked to diversity? Obviously, diet, but then there's things like exercise, um, the air we breathe, and I think you just posted something, the water we drink, and so forth. So, how do you sort of, I don't know, pull that all together about cause and effect and, and a hierarchy? Of what what do you think is most important for you know diversity? Yeah, that's a really great point because I think a lot of these findings are associations. So we really don't have the evidence that it is causal. But I think, you know, bringing together all these different types of evidence that exist, for example, in mice and, um, you know, these different models of the gut that certain scientists have available in their labs, kind of triangulating from all of that, we do get an idea of cause and effect. And you know, with diet, I think it's pretty clear that that's causal. Certain mm. components of diet are causal to change the microbiota composition. Um, but yeah, certain other ones, I mean, exercise is a little bit um, more nebulous. I think it's, it's normally exercise goes hand in hand with different diets, dietary mm. changes, like this overall kind of healthy lifestyle thing. Um, rarely do people in real life just change the amount of exercise without changing anything about their diet. So it's just very hard to sort out. But again, I think some of these um, other models are helping, you know, figure that out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Also on that point, you mentioned animal models, um, again, are really important for understanding mechanisms. Um, I think this comes to my frustration that adjusting the microbiome say in, in mice has profound effects like you know that you can half their body weight for example uh you give them a, some sort of probiotic and there's major effects but then when it translates to humans um it seems really messy and you, you barely get a signal how do you sort of if you get like a you, you reduce the results by half when you <laughs> when you see an animal model how do you sort of you know pull that together yeah i mean i think yeah it- that's exactly right. I mean, in the definitely in the microbiota gut brain axis field, it's sort of notorious that you'll get all these amazing effects in mice. And, you know, you test the same thing in humans, and you get nothing, you know, because, especially I think humans have just a much richer cognitive and social life than mice. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the way around it, I guess. um, Yeah, I think it's just more research. I think it's not putting too much stock in any one Mm. study is probably the answer and waiting for these broad trends across the scientific literature to emerge. Definitely there are, you know, dozens of scientists working hard on these answers and some of them have really good human cohorts and then they're kind of taking their ideas and testing them in mice and bringing them back to the human cohort and I think a lot of these studies will probably be ready to publish over the next, you know, two to five years and we'll have more answers, um, I hope. Yeah, yeah, well said. All right. And there's one area I'm curious on, well, there's many areas, but um, I shared a paper, a recent paper with you. The small intestine, off, um, there's some researchers that suggest that's the, the next sort of frontier in um understanding systemic and gastrointestinal diseases we've often looked at the colonic microbiome maybe because it's a little bit more easier to access and um, sequence but now the small intestine there's obviously less bacteria in there but uh, the signals coming from there may have profound effects so 
I suppose, broadly speaking, what's your views on the small intestine, the microbiome, and, and what promise could it potentially deliver in the future for, for health and disease? I do think it's enormously promising. And from what I hear from the scientists when I interview them, yeah, many of them say, okay, there's a few reasons why the small intestine could be much more intricately connected and causally connected to disease um, compared to the, you know, the colon or having a stool sample. Uh, one is, you know, you have such um, a bigger connection to the immune system through the small intestine because you've got a lot of the gut, the gut associated lymphoid tissue there. And um, not only that, but the gut barrier in the small intestine is, um, well, the mucus layer is thinner, more permeable. Uh, so just more potential for things to move in and out of that, you know, space. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely promising, but again, yeah, really hard to test. It's, you know, of course there, there's, um, certain ways, of course, with uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, there's a, a breath test, which is non-invasive. But if you actually want to sample the microbes in there, it's very difficult and invasive. And, you know, there has been talk of a little pill sensor, mm. although I'm not sure how validated that is as a way to capture the microbes. But so I think I think we have some innovation to do in that space. Yeah, great. So yeah, any sort of um, insights in the latest science um, or any sort of myths perhaps around sort of SIBO? Um, often certain single organisms are maybe portrayed as uh, whether they're good or problematic. Um, is it as simple as that or is it around the abundance and diversity? Any any new news around the small intestine? Yeah, so with SIBO, the latest I've heard is of course SIBO is measured usually with the breath test and it just tests for overgrowth of bacteria. Um, and then, and as you know, uh, Dr. Mark Pimentel is one of the leaders in this and he has um, kind of shown that there's one type of SIBO that will kind of respond to antibiotics and will be associated with getting rid of symptoms, you know, improvement in symptoms. But there's another kind of SIBO that it's just overgrowth and the symptoms are separate and they don't respond when you kind of address right. the SIBO. And so this is kind of a conundrum. It's like, what's really going on? Is it really just about the, the abundance of the bacteria? So he looked further into this. And yeah, in a recent study, he did find there's more of um, like a compositional difference. But, and there, there are subtypes of SIBO essentially that do have relationships with the GI symptoms. Um, so we can maybe provide that link in, in the show yeah. notes. But um, yeah, it's, I think we're getting more fine grained as to what exactly, you know, what changes in the small intestine are correlated with what symptoms. And then that could lead us toward better treatments for that. Yeah. Interesting. So other microbiomes, one that's um, seeming to be trending is the vaginal or peritoneal microbiome in women. Um, obviously, there, there's um, vaginosis, but also there's hints, say, with endometriosis having some sort of microbial etiology. Um, can you give a bit of a, a summary of what's happening in this space? And particularly, yeah, with endometriosis, do you have any insights there? Yeah, for sure. This, this area, I would say, 
is an area of very high clinical need. And I can say that very genuinely because I, you know, I have endometriosis or I guess in the past, so it's diagnosed surgically, right? Mm. Um, and in the past I had more symptoms. Um, I don't as much now, but I definitely relate to women who, you know, have really a lot of pain and, um, yeah, you know, with their monthly cycle, a lot of pain, um, heavy discharge. So, um, I think it's interesting to me to see the microbiome kind of coming into this area. And, um, so far it looks like there's some sort of connection, uh, as far as, um, in endometriosis, people who have been diagnosed, there are maybe minor changes in the vaginal and cervical microbiota, nothing too dramatic there. But yeah, the, the interesting study um, showed, a, a more interesting study showed changes in the peritoneal environment, which, you know, I think is really interesting. It's, it's invasive to test that because mm -hmm. you need that fluid that surrounds the organs and, um, but I think there could be a connection because, uh, you know, it's, it's plausible because there's inflammation, right, all within that area. And we know that inflammation and microbiota changes go hand in hand. So I'm really interested in how this all plays out, whether it would be possible to maybe have some injections and modulate that environment in order to have less inflammation. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, injection sounds interesting. Um, question with that notice the skin microbiome is also um, very popular at the moment. So I'm, I'm not sure if I have like a really direct question or not, but any comments like that, you know, there's, a, there's a, the um, gut and skin access. Uh, people treat uh, skin conditions with probiotics. Um, there's thoughts around, I think, is it topical sort of probiotics for skin? What's the sort of new news around skin and skin microbiome? Yeah, I think there seem to be two avenues to this, to modulating the skin microbiome. And one is topical. So just as you'd suspect, a, a cream to put on a certain area to address the skin microbiome, maybe for eczema or other skin conditions. And the other is the gut. So modulating the gut to affect the skin through the gut skin axis. So there seems to be a, a gut everything axis, right? I know. <laughs> gut lung, gut skin, gut brain, right? So yeah, this, um, and I think what's interesting to me in this area is possibly prevention because there's some idea that if children have a certain gut microbiome early in life, they would be more or less predisposed to um, eczema and even possibly asthma and allergy, but because they mm. all go hand in hand. But yeah, eczema especially, because I think with severe cases of eczema, um, it can be quite hard, you know, quite debilitating sometimes. So it's, yeah, an interesting area to, to watch. And, and some baby formulas are trying to incorporate ingredients that could possibly prevent um, you know, the, yeah. the occurrence of eczema in people who were at risk, people who yeah. basically had a mother with eczema. And imagine the topicals, the, the formulations would be probably foreign to many practitioners' eyes that um, I, I, I presume it's not the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium that are supposed to be on the skin. So what are, if off the top of your head, if you can name any, what are some of the, the um, organisms that 
um, maybe used topically in the future? Yeah, cutie bacterium, I think, or uh, corny bacterium. Yeah, I think it's corny bacterium, although it may have been renamed in the past okay, few yeah. years, so it's worth looking up. Um, that one has also been associated with younger looking skin, I think in a couple of studies. So there's this whole idea, and I think several companies are pursuing whether they could take strains of corny bacterium and modulate the skin to look younger, which all of us would love. <laughs> um yeah, so I think you know, with topicals, I have heard of other ones that are being tested as drugs. And so this is a whole other area of development in microbiome science is like um, these uh, possible therapeutics that have to go through clinical trials and be manufactured to a drug standard and then be administered for a condition. And None of them are on the market essentially right now, globally, um, any live um, bacterial therapeutics, but there is enormous interest, um, hundreds of companies advancing these in different ways. Um, and so obviously not just skin, but to target all areas of the body, you know, with different uh, microorganisms. Mm, that's interesting. Look forward to finding more about that. All right. We've done a bit of a, a lay of the land tour of different biomes. Um, now I wanted to dive into specific components coming from microbiome, some of the new science uh, there. So the, the big one that's I don't know too much about, but it seems to be trending and it could explain perhaps how um, gut or bacteria communication work and, and potentially even probiotics, one of the mechanisms of actions, is this concept of extracellular vesicles. So cool, cool sounding phrase. What does it mean and um, what do we know about these extracellular vesicles? So yeah, these are really fascinating things. Um, I was assigned a piece to write about these and I was thinking, okay, what even are these? And so it turns out <laughs> they are essentially like armored vehicles that travel around the body and they carry really precious cargo different types of cargo in some case, um, like there's different kinds of extracellular vesicles, but they can carry um, like proteins, lipids, um, mRNA. So they carry these to different sites. And what's interesting about them is they're very tissue specific. So they, they really home in on one type of tissue in the body. So um, there's some talk uh, about these therapeutically, like if you really want to target, let's say the gut, could you administer an extracellular vesicle that really targeted the gut? I mean, normally in the body, they're used to communicate between different cells, right? Um, but could you use them therapeutically, just leveraging the fact that they beeline for a certain tissue and, you know, have an effect there? Um, and so, yeah, there has been talk about bacterial extracellular vesicles and possibly, so first of all, I think the, the one insight is that the scientists are realizing is that these are a part of bacteria that are administered, like probiotics. So in some cases, maybe they have been part of the mechanism of action all along. It's not really clear yet, but maybe. <laughs> Or could we purify them and administer only those extracellular vesicles? Right. 
and then have some therapeutic effect that's very, very specific. Because I think, you know, and this is my opinion with probiotics, I, I feel that the strains we have, they have more general effects a lot of the time. And it would be really nice if we could have a probiotic, you know, really specific for less gas production or for like just really, really specific things about digestion. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe these um, are one way to explore or just different strains of probiotics. But I think that would be a really nice thing, a nice way for the field to evolve over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So these extracellular vesicles are like the, the cell membrane sort of pinches off um, and it has it forms a little sort of envelope and in that contains some sort of material. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, as you said, it, this happens in, in our own bodies from cell-to-cell -cell communication, but as the, the research describes, there's an inter-kingdom um, communication between different species and so forth. Um, it also made me think about there is um, currently some hesitancy for some people around the, the COVID vaccines about using the messenger RNA technology that's being sort of new. And I, when I read this, I thought, well, maybe maybe we've been exposed to messenger RNA from bacteria and other organisms since time immemorial. <laughs> well, bacteria came first and we came along. So maybe it's not that new. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We adapted to the bacteria that were here long before us. It's so true. And so, yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, interesting. And um so yeah with the the probiotics then um they wouldn't be live and we'll get to this in a moment like the, the sort of heat killed or the the postbiotics the extracellular vesicles would be a, a postbiotic by definition because it's no longer live it's just the, the like the membrane yes yeah it could be included in that postbiotic definition um i think yeah it's sort of a very new emerging area i've only heard scientists talking about it i haven't really heard you know, a discourse about this in the general public. But I do think it's, you know, as more companies pursue this, um, maybe we'll start to see more marketing material and, and education about these specific membranes, yeah. these vesicles. Yeah. So these vesicles, some researchers suggest are like a defense mechanism from the bacteria. Um, so this is a nice segue to the next topic on on phages, I don't know too much about these, but these are viruses that consume bacteria. It seems like there's a real warfare going on inside our, our microbiome um, for territory. So um, what are phages and, and is there any sort of uh, therapeutic potential for the phages? I think so, yes. So exactly as you say, uh, phages or bacterial phages are viruses that target microorganisms such as bacteria. Um, a lot of them, you know, are harmless and but some do have a specific target that they kill. And so, um, I mean, phages, they're very numerous in our gut microbiota, they coexist with our bacteria. But again, yes, yeah, certain phages kill, uh, kill microorganisms. And there's been a lot of talk about whether we could leverage this to edit the microbiome. So often now you do hear about adding to the microbial ecosystem through probiotics or whatever it is. However, there's also talk of whether you could edit. And of course, our, our only way of editing so far is antibiotics. And that's a very bad way of editing because it's like if you have a written document and you want to edit a typo, well, you just basically take away 50% of the words 
to edit the one typo. So it's very inefficient. And, you know, of course, yeah, the, the antibiotics we have available often target or often kill way too many, not just the path of the pathogen that they're targeting. So phages could be a way to take out specific bacteria, pathogens, or even what's called pathobionts, which they aren't exactly disease causing, but under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, they could become harmful. So targeting those, or, or maybe if we find a causal relationship between some bacteria and disease, we could edit those out and just go along with our lives. So definitely this is a promising area. I think, in fact, I have heard some experimental phage therapies being used for antibiotic resistant right. uh, pathogens, which is yeah. very cool because antibiotic resistance is a massive global problem. And, you know, if we thought COVID was bad, like AMR, antimicrobial resistance, is going to cause way more havoc, you know, according to the estimates um, wow. in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I also wrote a piece on this uh, for Nature uh, last year. And yeah, it's just the, the forecasts are not, not good. So, but phage therapy is a, is a promising way to maybe address that or one of the many ways to address that. But also possibly it could have applications to chronic disease if we find that certain, yeah, certain bacteria can be um, eliminated very neatly uh, from the microbiome. Yeah. Cool. Um, on that idea of editing, uh, uh, with a, a real sort of extreme um, method, I suppose, is fecal microbiota transplantation um, for um, C. difficile. It's being used um, therapeutically, I think, for IBD and maybe IBS. There's been a trial on autism. Um, so my question is around the the lasting effects of FMT. Does that, um, because I think I remember looking at a study a while ago on obese patients with metabolic syndrome and there was a, a transient benefit, but the, the microbiome basically bounced back to its default state. Um, so do you know how well or not FMT alters the microbiome over the long period of time? Does it eventually go back to, to you sort of, do you have a microbiome set point? Right. Yeah. And I think in recurrent C. difficile, it is clear that once you get this therapy, the microbiome goes more to the donor-like composition. Right. And, you know, it might diminish a little bit over time, but essentially, you know, you end up with this I don't know, refurbished, you might say, microbiome. But I think many other conditions, there's already more of an established microbiome there. So there's not this empty territory for the fecal microbiota transplant to come in and, and for the strains to ingraft. So yeah, from the literature I've seen, it often is not a lasting change. But I think the more interesting question to me is whether there is clinical benefit and in the obesity studies so far, there hasn't been shown that people lose weight. Uh, sometimes they have metabolic benefits, like um, a change in their glucose control, essentially. So that, that would be good um, if that could be replicated. And again, it might depend on the donor, whether they have a good community. So I think there's just a lot to learn about which kinds of communities are needed 
um, to actually, you know, change something in the recipient. Um, and it's, it's very, it's actually very tough. And yeah, I, I can probably name like two dozen conditions where they've tried fecal transplants in humans. And yeah, for the majority of the time, there's very little clinical benefit and very um, little change in the microbes. But I, I am optimistic, you know, I think, you know, we we're talking about these drug companies that are trying to um, develop microbiota therapies. And a lot of them are taking um, an artificial or a, a lab grown community of microbes. Yeah. And, and they're very targeted ones, and then trying to see if they can make changes. And that might be more of a promising avenue. Yeah, um, which reminds me, is it? I think it's actually um, locally here in Brisbane, some researchers are looking at almost mimicking the effects of helmet therapy for autoimmune diseases and trying to um, develop molecules that have similar but maybe more targeted effects. Any thoughts around the helmet, the the phenomenon of I think it's been celiac disease have been shown to provide helmets, and um, these patients can now tolerate um, bowls of pasta, which is <laughs> incredible. It is really neat. Yeah, the stories are quite incredible, and I think there was a story of someone who was so desperate to get rid of their allergies that they went and um, they went to some communities um, in different countries with less kind of advanced sanitation, and they yeah, walked around in the latrines to try to get a helminth infection. And, you know, the personally, you know, they shared their story and it, it seemed to help, right? It's not a clinical trial, but, you know, who yeah. knows? So, um, but then, yeah, I think subsequent work showed there is something there, but it might have to do with the microbiota shift. And yeah, could you replicate that microbiota shift another way without giving yourself a parasite infection? So, yeah, I think it's super fascinating. And, I haven't heard of any um, successful therapies, again, that, that use that, but I'm sure that they're being worked on and, and it's just a matter of time before we hear about it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, really fascinating stuff. All right. So we've covered bacteria, viruses, helmets. And now the other kingdom that we haven't explored is the, the mycome, the um, fungal or um, element that appear to be lurking in our in our microbiome and i suppose the the old um view from the 80s and 90s it was candida and that was um you know pathogenic but uh is there now thought to be beneficial um fungi uh or does it have you know profound effects on a microbiome it, it hasn't really been that well documented up until now so yeah what's your insights on the the mycome Exactly. I think that it has been very little studied compared to the bacteria of the gut and other parts of the body. It seems to me that so far there are certain conditions where the fungi might be more relevant and inflammatory bowel disease is interesting. I think the work of Harry Sokol out of Paris has investigated um, like fungal changes in, in people with IBD and whether they could be relevant to yeah to disease course and so on, so I think that's a space to watch. Um, yeah, more research definitely needs to be done. But I think the scientists who who I've talked to have kind of characterized this as 
um, the relationship between bacteria and fungi in the gut is some sometimes kind of a nurturing relationship. Sometimes they they learn to coexist and they kind of help each other maintain the shape that they're in. And so if that's true, you know, a major change in the the bacteria could have knock-on effects on the fungi and and vice versa. So yeah, I think it's worth um knowing how they fit together in every specific disease and um, and I think, yeah, with as far as companies developing therapeutics, whether it's um, dietary or drug, I haven't heard as many focusing on the fungi, mm, but true. It, it could be to come in the years ahead. It could be a very, could turn out to be a very efficient way of manipulating the gut community, possibly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess time will tell. Yeah, it's a good point. All right. Well, now I want to turn our attention to more therapeutics. We've hinted at it. Um, I might start off with a broader category of the postbiotics. So the International Society of Prebiotics and Pro, Pro, Probiotics, ISAP, recently um, developed a definition and some sort of guidelines around these idea of postbiotics, which is, I suppose, almost revolutionary that we've always, or they've always said that's got to be, you know, a live organism that confers benefits, but um we're seeing things like heat kill probiotics and metabolites coming from the bacteria have as we saw with the extracellular vesicles have some some benefits so can you describe or define postbiotics and yeah some of the highlight some of the research that shows that it confers benefits to the host right so this is a quite an interesting story because i think if you go back five years ago um People, the popular definition of postbiotics was metabolites of bacteria. But I think sometimes, you know, when you sit down with the concept and look at it scientifically and say, how would you test this? Um, you find it, it doesn't hold up or it doesn't make sense. So I think that's what happened here with ISAP. They sat down, it was um, a number of leading scientists coming together to come up with a consensus scientific definition. And I think what they found was, well, with, you know, bacterial metabolites, um, it's fine to say, you know, oh, butyrate, right? That's a specific metabolite of a bacteria. But if you're, it's, it's too hard to study them if you have this category of postbiotics because in the body, you have thousands of metabolites, you know, swimming around or, you know, around in your body. And it's impossible to tell which ones came from bacteria specifically. Um, maybe there was um, cross feeding effects, right, um, where one bacteria consumed the metabolite of another. So it's hard to know if you administer bacteria, did the metabolite come from those ones you administered? It's just too complex to sort out. So they favored calling butyrate butyrate, like just anything that's a metabolic product of bacteria, just call it by its chemical name. And then you don't have to say where it came from, just that it's there. And that postbiotics should really refer to the um, what's left over after you inactivate or kill um, a bacterium or a fermentate, like a, you know, um, a soup of, <laughs> of live bacteria. So, uh, yeah, so that's where they stood and they published this definition, uh, earlier this year. I think it's been 
slightly controversial in the field because people were used to the old way of thinking of postbiotics. But now, um, essentially, what, what they're saying is a postbiotic is characterized by some sort of process, well, some a live microbe, and then some sort of process to inactivate or kill it. And anything that's left over can be considered the postbiotic. So probably cell components, it, it must have some sort of cell components, but it could also have in that kind of mixture, it could have metabolites, but um, it has to have some component of the dead cell. Yeah. So the um, the heat kill probiotics fascinate me, um, you know, maybe commercially or clinically, they can be useful because of, uh, you know, storage and, and so forth. It's a bit easier, but there's some research to show that they um, possess benefits above and beyond the live bacteria, um, these sort of zombie um, probiotics, as sometimes they're called. Um, so how are they, they heat treated? Does that have any special benefits? And, and can we explain why potentially they have equal or sometimes superior benefits to probiotics? Yeah, I don't think it's very clear why the dead cell would have, you know, equal or more benefits to the live cell, but it is, a, a, you know, a scientific finding. I think with acromancia that it's a great example where Patrice Kenny and his group had found that the heat-killed version of acromancia of a certain strain um, was just as effective, and then they isolated a protein from the bacteria that was the active component. So and actually had, yeah, equal or better metabolic effects as the live bacterium, which is very handy because acromancia is anaerobic and doesn't, you know, it's very hard to manufacture in a way mm, that's away mm. from oxygen and then deliver it to the gut. So yeah. that that's great that it was able to, um, they were able to find that active component. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but I think it's sort of still a mystery why, but it's, it's very cool. And I think, again, this gets around some of the manufacturing challenges um, because I think some of the bacteria that we're finding maybe causal or really closely connected with inflammation and disease, yeah, they might be anaerobes. And then you've got this whole, <laughs> this whole issue of how to deliver them to people when they don't grow or they die in oxygen, right? If you want to deliver them mm -hmm. live. So this is a great way to get around that. And as you say, it's very convenient to have um, a postbiotic or another type of um, yeah, format instead of the live cell. Yeah. So, yeah, on our list was Akamansia. I want to now ask about that. That seems to be spoken about a lot. And, yeah, Patrice Kenny has done some research, I think, recently on uh, humans with metabolic disease. And I think there was a bit of a signal there. Again, it's one of these ones to me. It's sort of it's very teasing that um, it's often spoken about. It seems to have, you know, major benefits in animal models. Um, time will tell. Perhaps with humans, there has been this issue around obviously manufacturing, so maybe the heat killed. But can you describe Akamansia? Um, why there's so much potential talk about it, and what um, you know benefits it may hold. Yeah, I think it's mainly to do with its metabolic benefits. Yeah, because it's just been very, very hard to change the microbiome in a way that affects weight. And that is, and or to find any therapeutic that affects weight, right? Everyone 
has been yep. looking for this for a long, long time. And we have lifestyle therapies, of course, and now some drugs for obesity, but you know, can we have any novel therapeutics? And of course, um, there were the initial um, studies from Gordon Lab in the early 2000s that showed that mice receiving, you know, a fecal transplant from a thin mouse, um, or actually, they it was that they didn't gain weight. It wasn't that they lost weight. It was actually that right. they, they prevented the and mice from diet. gaining weight. So, yeah, there's lots of talk about using the microbiome to help, I guess, prevent weight gain or, or even cause weight gain, so or, uh, weight loss. So, yeah, I think acromantia has been the focus of a lot of this. It's gotten a lot of play um, because of the studies, but it is a complex bacterium. I also have heard, you know, in the gut-brain axis conferences that it is notably increased in Parkinson's disease. So, again, maybe an association, but um, it's just worth noting. So... I think it's, yeah, it's worth um, being careful, certainly, and, and testing it well to make sure it actually has the right effects. And it could be, you know, just the, just the right amount is necessary. Um, or it honestly could be that other bacteria are more relevant and they're keeping acromancy in check. So it sort of looks like acromancy is relevant, but really the key players are other bacteria in the ecosystem. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's one to watch. I think you can, you can now get it, you can buy it. Um, but again, remember if it's in powder form, it's not live acromancia because that has oxygen, you know, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess it's, yeah, it's worth watching. And, and, um, I think there may be, um, uh, foods, foods and even drugs, um, based on acromancia on the market in the next while. Okay. Are there any other specific strains of bacteria like Echomansia that seem to be trending and have outside the yeah, traditional lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, et cetera, any other sort of more exotic ones that um, pique your interest? Um, Fecalibacterium comes to mind. Fecalibacterium presnitzii, yeah. So it's associated with less inflammation generally. Um, so that's one... I, I haven't heard of specific therapeutics being developed around that, but I'm sure, you know, probably behind the scenes it's happening. Um, and yeah, I'm thinking there are others, but I think not as well known as those yeah. two. Yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't looked at it for a, a reasonable period, but it did when you mentioned the Akamanzia is almost like the harbinger of, of health and disease. The, um, for a while there, we were looking at a concept of these sort of keystone species. I'm not sure if that came up as one, but like the Roseburia, maybe Prevotella. Um, is that still a concept about these sort of keystone that sort of like the, I think they use the Yellowstone Park. It's the wolf of the Yellowstone Park. If that one goes, then the rest of the, the ecosystem could, could um, collapse. Um, is that still discussed and are any of those potential as sort of therapeutics? I think, I mean, yeah, a lot of the companies are probably considering those kind of aspects in going into their product development. I mean, some some companies are literally just doing like, oh, here's what's missing in mm. the bacterial microbiome of this disease. Let's add it. 
Right. But I think the more sophisticated ones are saying, well, you know, it might not, it might not engraft if we do that. So what is controlling it? You know, what is controlling that bacteria or yeah, looking at the whole ecosystem and yeah, what you can do to put pressure on it. So, um, yeah, to me, I guess that's probably happening again behind the scenes and the science, and then it'll result in some sort of um, bacterially, I don't know, based therapy, yeah. and it'll have a clinical effect. So, yeah, yeah it's kind of like, I think you probably um, should be thinking about the ecosystem if you want a good clinical effect. Yeah. Um, which leads me on to if we, some people use that sort of naturalistic philosophy that you know, the environment contains these, therefore it's good to have um, these sort of dirt-based or spore-based um, probiotics are, are now available. Um, there seems to be some research on it. Like, uh, it's interesting. I'm still not convinced that they provide, you know, clinical benefits above and beyond the traditional ones. But, yeah, any sort of thoughts on these spore-based probiotics? Is it the bacillus-type probiotics? Yeah, they do seem to have some really dedicated followers and, you know, proponents. Uh, personally, I find, yeah, the spore-based probiotics are not a huge part of the probiotic conversation going on. I think, you know, to me, a probiotic, if it has a clinical effect that's shown in studies, sure, that's great. Like, uh, you know, I don't really mind where it comes from, whether it's mm. the dirt or a human <laughs> gut or food. So yeah. um, to me, the clinical benefit is really what counts. So, you know, I would say if people um, have looked up the probiotic and think it might benefit them, why not? You know, I, but I think it's a nice story to layer on top that, oh, yeah, we're connected with this environment around us, and we should have this bacterial exchange. Um, it's a nice story, but yeah, does it actually have an effect on you? I think yep. that's the important thing. Uh, and similar, just came to mind is they're not. I don't think they're available yet in Australia. They're available US and broadly. These human milk oligosaccharides, um, they seem to have broad sort of prebiotic benefits. Again, it makes sense from breast milk. Um, can you describe them? And I'm a little bit confused. There seems to be so many like different subchains and two FLs and so all these different acronyms. It's as a beginner, it's really hard to get your head around. So, what's your elevator um, pitch around HMOs? Yeah, HMOs. So, yeah, these of course are special sugars, complex carbohydrates found in human milk. And yeah, I just I attended a human milk conference during the pandemic virtually, so I learned a bit more about these. Um, and there are many, many different types. Um, and each mother has sort of a different uh, breakdown of types of um, HMOs. But certain ones, so out of all this big pool of possible types, a couple of them are now manufactured commercially. And they can be, in, you know, added to baby formula. Right. Um, so... It's certainly not approaching actual human milk yet because, you know, it has this huge array of HMOs, but, and whereas like a formula would have one or two types, um, but it's, it's sort of, I think they're trying to get closer to approximating milk, human milk through the formulas. So I think basically to me, um, they're, they're replacing a lot of the prebiotics in human milk or sorry, in, in formula, I think 
a while ago and and actually when i had my kids they the new ingredient the, the trendy ingredient in formula was prebiotics i think they used goss um galactooligosaccharides and yes um there were some studies but there was never sort of that real momentum for that for goss in formula and now that hmos are possible to add i think that's more of the promising area and maybe a cocktail of HMOs to add to the formula um, and even live microbes. So starting to zero in on some probiotic microbes that you could add um, in a safe way to benefit kids. Um, but as for HMOs, yeah. So just to finish the story on those, they, um, they go into the gut, the baby cannot digest them, but the bacteria in the baby's gut love them. And, and then basically, yeah, eat them up and um, release metabolites that are beneficial to the babies. And and a recent study just um, tracked that as well and showed that um, these certain bifidobacteria release, um, I think it was indole metabolites, some kind that actually had documented effects on the baby's immune system as it was developing. So that was right. really cool to show like the whole chain of events that happens there. And what about applications outside of infants, like children and adults? Do you think there's a benefit there? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, with the whole prebiotic area, I think it, it, it has a lot of promise because you're sort of putting pressure in some way on the microbial ecosystem with certain types of fiber and HMOs could be part of that toolbox of, of prebiotics and ways to encourage the growth of different microbes. So yeah, I wouldn't rule out HMOs for even adult health, um, but I think a lot more research should be done. Um, there, there's probably a little bit out there um, on other populations besides babies, but by far the most research on HMOs is still in babies. Okay. And finally, um, you mentioned earlier um, butyrate is a popular amongst the, the thought of butyrate, I suppose, uh, is popular amongst practitioners and it's heavily cited in the research. And the sort of meme is that you need a lot of fiber in your diet and this turns into short chain fatty acids. And it seems that the chief one that people are interested in is butyrate. Um, and people can cite mechanisms around methylation and um, gut brain access and so forth. Uh, though there is some researchers that caution this is a double-edged sword again like probably like the acomantia with parkinson's i think there's certain disease states maybe it's a colon cancer and um obesity where there's excess butyrate so there's some questions around butyrate um yeah can you add to the sort of the the sequelae of um, metabolism but also you know your thoughts on it as a, a sort of a single ingredient um as a therapy yeah, I think you've summarized it quite nicely. It is a double-edged sword. And, you know, there are examples where, well, there are many examples where it's increased and it's a good thing. It's, you know, associated with health. But then there are these other examples where uh, too much seems to be detrimental. So, yeah, I guess um, my take on it from what I've seen is there's something about endogenously produced butyrate um, so first of all, yeah, when you try to isolate butyrate, um, what I've heard is that it really smells. It's not <laughs> pleasant. <laughs> yeah. And then trying to administer it. Um, 
somehow doesn't seem to have the same effects as if it's produced in the gut. So um, again, getting at this um, through prebiotics or, or fibers, where you, you administer those and then the gut itself produces the butyrate. So I, it seems to be that those that that way is more beneficial somehow. So I don't think we've truly unlocked butyrate, um, but there's something, yeah, about being produced in the gut. Um, certain bacteria are, yeah, butyrate producers. So you can have higher or lower amounts of those. Maybe uh, the answer is, yeah, kind of shaping your microbes, your community of microbes, so that it's better at producing butyrate. Um, that might be the, the kind of key there. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting argument, I think. The, the sort of flip side maybe there i think there's some studies looking at the sort of delayed re release which may help um get it to distal parts of the colon um and i'm also touched upon some research where people um struggle to make butyrate even though they might possess some of the the right species there's this sort of inability to produce it but yeah there's probably more questions than answers at this stage yeah but it definitely seems like there are some really promising effects. And for example, um, with metabolic disease, type 2 diabetes, it could be one of the key ways to, um, to help metabolism. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, any other, I've exhausted my list that I can think of, any other noteworthy therapeutics emerging that, um, that come to mind? To me, uh, I'm really interested in therapeutic diets as well. Yep. And how they might have a mechanism of action through the gut microbes. So we know there are certain diets that, you know, have therapeutic effects like um, the low FODMAP diet. It seems to reduce symptoms in irritable bowel syndrome. And how does it work? Um, I think there's been some research um and and it's based in australia some of it right the mm, gibson low fodmap yep. stuff mm, and mm, yeah does it work by modulating the microbiota or um in the case of low fodmap you know maybe it actually is detrimental to the microbiota and we need some other way of um, diversifying and and creating this um, thriving community um, so i think there's lots to learn i work with um, a, a dietitian very closely, Natasha Haskey, and we had written our textbook together for Elsevier called Gut Microbiota Interactive Effects on Nutrition and Health. And yeah, that's one of the questions we have is like, dietitians know certain therapeutic diets work for certain conditions. Um, and is the mechanism through the microbes and can you even improve the effects through additional strategies? Um, so, so I'm watching that space very yeah. closely. Yeah, it's interesting. The the personalised nutrition is it. Tim Spector in the UK, he's quite big on that. And then Aran Segal at Wiseman Institute in Israel, doing really fascinating work with diabetes and showing a personalised diet, partly based on your microbiome composition, seems to be superior to a Mediterranean diet for managing diabetes. Do you know mm -hmm. much about Tim's work and um, what he's sort of finding or his his um theory is somewhat i think yeah there are a couple of uh companies that have spun out of these big research projects so 
with um, the Elenov work, it's day two. And that's, I think they are active in the US as well as Israel and a few other countries. Um, and then, yeah, Zoe is the one associated oh, right. with Zoe. Uh, yeah. Tim Spector's work. So, yeah. <clears throat> and with these tests, you know, I think it can be really interesting to take them and, and figure out what microbes are in your gut and to see the dietary recommendations. I still think there's a lot of validation work to be done because ultimately the, even the um, data they have is, is limited. Mm. Um, Tim Spector has the added element though, of having a very large cohort of twins. So you've got genetically identical people and you can factor out the effects of genetics, which is an added bonus. So, um, but I think it's just worth taking the results at this stage with a grain of salt because you've got sort of a limited pool of people that you're comparing to. And I think um, with further work and, but these studies that they're based out of are, are massive. So maybe we'll see some more published results with, um, you know, that kind of validate the, the things that they're saying in the tests. Yep. So um, finally, the end of one, tell me about Christina Campbell. How do you go about, do you, um, do you look at food and think that's going to boost my privateller? I should eat this. How do you construct your diet? Um, is there any any probiotics or anything you you found works for yourself or um, you use to maintain your your good gut health now? Yeah, you know, I do different things at different times. I have to say, <laughs> I'm not hardcore about any one thing, but I love trying new products and and seeing you know if there's any effect. Um, yeah, of course. Like previously, I actually had gut problems I wanted to get rid of. And I, at the time, um, yeah, I took a women's health probiotic, which was sort of targeted to digestive problems in women. And that seemed to help. Um, Nowadays, I like, you know, I have a mostly healthy gut. So I like to um, get my probiotics in food. So I like different yogurt drinks and um, fermented foods. So technically, those are not probiotics, but um, they're live cultures, and I like to get a lot of them. So I'll have kimchi in my fridge, and my friend and I make miso every year, and sauerkraut um, a few times. So yeah, um, fermented foods. And and actually, too, I should mention the study that, that was really cool from the Sonnenberg Lab, Yeah, where they tested a high fermented foods diet. Yes. Yeah. And of course, yeah, they actually did a dietary intervention and gave a high fermented foods diet to these people. And it, so it's not attributed to any one fermented food, but just like somehow the combination of all the foods um, created effects on their immune system, like anti-inflammatory effects. Right. So, and they gave that, the controls um, prebiotics, didn't they? Yeah, so high fiber. And that also had beneficial effects, but the, it depended a little more on the baseline microbiota. Right. So whether that microbiota could kind of leverage the fiber to have the effect ah. on the immune system. Whereas the fermented foods just sort of had the the positive effects. Um, So anyway, yeah, that sort of backs up that idea of high fermented foods. Um, And they're just fun to make and and fail (laughs) at too. So (laughs) there's some moldy ones and I just throw them away and start again. So yeah. 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 (laughs) Very good. Um, So just to wrap up, how do you, as I'm curious as a, you know, you're, can communicate so well and you've got your finger on the pulse of all these studies. How do you sort of uh, monitor all this? How do you survey all this? There's so much research coming out. What does your day look like? 
Yeah, I feel like these days I am kind of drowning in all this information, but um, yeah, like, you know, it was say five years ago, you could kind of keep on top of all the studies, but now it's more like I keep on top of the community on mm -hmm. um, Twitter and Instagram and a few other places and try to see what they're talking about and then look up those studies. So right. I really have to get people to curate for me these days to keep up with everything. Yeah. Um, and then sort of in my daily work, I come across, you know, scientists talking about this or that. So I'll look it up. Um, yeah. But some of my favorite resources, you know, if, if people are really interested in the scientific literature, there is the Microbiome Digest, which is a daily digest of um, newly published scientific studies in the, on the microbiome. There's different categories. So if you like the environmental microbiome versus the human versus animal models, you can find them all there yep. um, on that blog. Um, Gut Microbiota for Health is quite a good resource with a lot of content about that highlights different new studies and talks about its implications. Um, and then, yeah, different Twitter accounts are always good for pointing in the right direction mm. too with some of the trendy things. Yeah. Um, who are some of your favorite researchers? I'll phrase it this way. If you're to host a geeky uh, fermented food dinner party and you can invite five <laughs> researchers, who would they be? <laughs> with with how many? Uh, let's say up to five. Well, that's probably too many. Up to five. <laughs> oh, a couple come to mind. So Yasmin Belcade is amazing. Uh, she works for the NIH, I believe, in the U.S., and she has done stuff on the immune system and microbiota and perhaps even like sort of immune scarring um, wow. that happens when you have an infection. So uh, Jeff Gordon, he's really one of the first researchers who brought this to popularity. Rob Knight, yep. super geeky bioinformatician, but like so brilliant. And <laughs> I always <laughs> love listening to him speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wendy Garrett is pretty awesome. She's a physician based at Harvard and does super cool work on colon cancer and I believe kidney disease and microbiota. I just love how she brings everything around to clinical applications. Um, yeah. So that, no, that'd probably be my core crew right there. Okay. Well, I'm pretty <laughs> pleased I've had Rob Knight on the podcast once before. And, um, oh, funny, nice. Funny story of recording and his phone kept ringing and he kept looking and I said, oh, I paused it. Do you want to get that? And he sort of looked at it and put the phone back down and said, no, nah, it's just NASA. <laughs> they're, oh. they're, <laughs> they're bothering yeah, me again. He's an in-demand guy. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Cool. Um, cool. I'll have to look up some of those uh, people. That's great. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for your insights. As I said, like to be able to communicate so clearly and concisely all this uh, difficult, exciting, but also um, frustrating, as I said, information. Uh, kudos to you. Um, so, yeah, where can people find you? And, um, yeah, some of those resources again, can you promote those? Sure, yeah. I have a Twitter account and it's at by Chris Campbell. That's K R I S Campbell. And also my website is the same by chriscampbell.com. And I'll usually link recent articles there um, that I've written for different publications. Um, and I do, I am on Instagram. I'm, I'm just getting used to posting on Instagram. So I'm not very active, but I do love, um, that's where I actually connect with a lot of microbial artists and illustrators oh, wow. and just see their beautiful work and scroll through it. So um, 
yeah, I recommend that if you like the visual part of microbiology. Um, and yeah, and then uh, Natasha and I also have started a podcast. It is if you are looking for um, a very concise overview of a certain area of microbiota, such as like alcohol and the gut microbiota or saturated fats and gut microbiota. So we try to do a very brief um, overview of certain areas related to the microbiome. And you can find that on Spotify currently or through my website. Excellent. Uh, well, Christina, thanks again. And uh, maybe we can touch base in a couple of years with some yeah, look what's the, the next phase of all these cool, hopefully um, powerful therapeutics that our patients and ourselves can use. Sounds great. Yeah, I think it's moving quickly. So, um, yeah, I hope there's lots more to say then. Well, yeah, good luck, and I hope to see you tweeting all around the world at all the different conferences soon. Thank you. <laughs> nice chatting with you. Thank you for listening. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult with a healthcare professional for medical advice.